Today's guest is a remarkable woman that I first ran across in a group on Facebook that we're both members of. And when we connected to learn a little bit more about what we each were up to in the world, we recognized right away that we had a ton in common and that even though we work in very different spaces, there's a lot of similarity and alignment in what we do and how we work with people. So in our conversation, we cover a ton of ground from sexual assault to sex trafficking, self-sabotage to self-awareness, and the importance of boundaries. I know you're going to find a lot in this conversation to appreciate and to learn from, and I am so pleased to bring her on the show. So here we go. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light on what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicourt-Rude. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Gillicourt-Rude. I am so excited to bring to you today's guest, She is somebody who comes into this conversation with a really interesting background, and I'm sure that as we talk, we're going to discover all kinds of areas where she and I have incredible alignment in the work that we do, and I I just can't wait to dig into it. Jackie is a triple certified coach in Enneagram, life coaching, and neuro-linguistic programming. She lives in the greater New York City area, and she works with individuals and companies to create sustainability and to reach goals through self-awareness and emotional intelligence. Jackie helps people understand the who, what, and why they are at their core. She is the CEO and founder of Table for Nine Coaching and the host of the Table for Nine podcast. Jackie has also healed from her own experience with abuse and has worked with survivors of human trafficking. Welcome to the show, Jackie. Hi, Cynthia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. Me too. I've been looking forward to this, and I know it took us a couple of iterations to actually get connected for the scheduling and everything, but I'm so glad because uh, when we first connected, I I was making notes, and I just kept writing yes and underlining it. Mm, wow, that's so good to hear. I was I felt the same way. We had our phone call and I was like, man, like I want to go for coffee with this woman. Why is she on the other side of the country there? <laughs> well, this is our virtual coffee date. There you go. Well, before we dig into the nitty-gritty stuff, I like to do some just fun questions. So are you ready for that? Yes, ma'am. Okay. If you could interview anyone, who would that be? Ooh, does that have to be a human? <laughs> <laughs> no. Coco the gorilla. Ooh, yeah. Why would you go for Coco? I just think, you know, she just seemed, seemed, uh, she's passed away since then, but seemed like a sweetheart and, you know, a gorilla who can communicate in sign language, who's extremely empathetic. Like, I would just love to have a conversation with her. I don't know why. If, if, if not her, then Robin Williams, but Coco the gorilla. (laughs) (laughs) So do you sign? No, no. I'd love to. I'd love to learn. I, I don't have the best, I don't know if it's hand-eye coordination, but I mean, I can't do things with my hands well. Like I'm a shaky person. I can't play piano as great as I'd like to. I mean, I just bad with my hands, my, my mouth and my brain work better. So, (laughs) 
what would you ask her? I think I'd ask her what her favorite foods are. I think I'd ask her who her favorite person is. Like just questions that, I mean, it's so varied. You don't want to go too deep. Like you're interviewing like a human being, but you don't want to ask them questions like a toddler. You want to ask a question like that you'd ask an animal if you could, like if Disney movies were real and they could come to life and you could ask them anything, you know? So it's just things like that, like simple questions, you know? That's cool. I, I hadn't even thought about that option. I think if, if I was going to interview somebody that's not human, I would want to interview my horse, Annalisa, because oh. I've had her since she was nine years old. She is 27 now. And I'm sure there's a ton she would like to, <laughs> like to tell mm. me about. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and that's that's the beauty of it. Like they always say things like when I went to I went to Jerusalem years ago, and just like to to explore the old city, and there was a tree there. They're like, oh, this tree has been here since, you know, like since Jesus walked the streets. And I was like, wow, if this tree could talk, and I thought, and I started to think that way about a lot of objects and the animals. Like, oh, if this if this thing could talk, you know, what would it say? So it's just it's an interesting concept. I love that question. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> I'm glad I asked it. What is your favorite treat to eat? Oh, man. Um, I have a really big sweet tooth, but I don't like anything that's too rich. So I really actually I like Brazilian desserts a lot. So they have like a lot of a lot of different types of sweets, but they have this passion fruit mousse. And that's my favorite. Oh, my gosh. My mouth just started watering. (laughs) Wow. I've never. Well, I guess I've had lemon lemon mousse and and that kind of thing before and chocolate, but I'm passion fruit. Wow. Yeah. So good. (laughs) That's neat. I always like to ask my guests, what is your favorite self-care practice? And I want to ask that sort of in two ways for you. And just like in general, what is your your favorite self-care practice? And have you started something or changed something about that since the whole quarantine, lockdown situation? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So, you know, one of my favorite self-care practices being a business owner was that I would get up, dress for the day as if I was leaving the house and just walk a few feet to my home office. And that has drastically changed. I mean, for me, I felt it was self-care because I felt very confident about the day and things like that. But that has actually drastically changed since quarantine I'm doing the work mullet where I'm dressed up from the top half <laughs> and then the, the bottom <laughs> is like no pants, but like at best sweatpants, you know, but I I think that's it's changed in a good sense. Like I used to do that. I was new in business. I needed this motivation and now I'm at the place where I'm going consistently and I think it's okay for self-care practices to change, but they changed not because I was like slacking, but I really just changed my mind about like, okay, like I'm I'm very confident in other things. Don't need these pants right now. <laughs> Yeah, that that's a that's a good insight actually. I think I used to feel guilty for not having the kind of self-care practice I thought I should have. Mm. And then when I moved up here into the mountains, I started developing different practices, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of one of the things that I used to look at as kind of being not an obligation, but like something that I needed to do was to take my dogs out for exercise in the morning. And it's like, yeah, you know, they need to get some exercise in the morning. If I don't do it now, you know, they're going to they're gonna have to wait till later in the day. That's not fair to them. So I better make sure I get out there and do it. And what I discovered is that it's, it's turned into like one of my favorite self-care practices because I'm outside in the fresh air, 
you know, this time of year in warmth and sunshine with the breeze and the trees and, you know, I can hear the wind in the trees and I can hear the sound of birds flying overhead. And it's just, it's such a bath in nature that it's, it's become like, I'm like, yeah, that, that is one of my self-care practices now. And the days that I don't do it, I really, really miss it. You know, it started because I felt like I owed that to my dogs and it's evolved to where it's like, I need to do that for me. Yeah. And you know what? I honestly, on that same vein of thought, I think a lot of people use self-care, you know, we self-care is the hot topic now. It's meant to, you know, care for yourself so you can sustain yourself to do what you've got to do. People are using self-care as a form of self-abuse now where it's like, I have to do this thing at this time. This is my self-care practice. If I don't do this, my whole day is going to be screwed up. And that's just, it defeats the whole purpose of caring for yourself. Like, if I find myself feeling obligated, like pushing myself to do something I'm feeling a little lazy about is one thing. But if I find myself feeling obligated to do a self-care task, I change it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's not self-care if it's becoming a should. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of coaches say this. They're like, stop shooting on yourself. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> – Well, what advice would you give to young women today, like women who are in their early 20s, maybe even late teens, that you wish that you'd had when you were that young? Oh, that's a good one. So honestly, for me, one of the things that I was never taught was the concept of boundaries. I mean, if anything, I was really taught in a physical sense when, you know, that really nice lady came to our school and taught us about good touch, bad touch. But outside of that, I was never taught about boundaries. I was never, I went my whole life, really, especially with a Middle Eastern background, really feeling obligated to everyone and everything because it's a very honor and shame culture. So I would tell myself, I would tell young girls, I would tell people my age, I do tell people my age, have boundaries, set them, don't assume that people know what they are, say it out loud and stick to it. And if you find yourself at any point tolerating something by the skin of your teeth, you need to figure out where the boundary needs to go because it's it's very clear and that boundaries save you from cutting off friendships and relationships they are the you know the gatekeeper to your mental health so boundaries are a huge push for me for especially young women about to enter the workplace they're going to really need that mhm so how do you advise them to deal with the fear that comes up for a lot of a lot of young women which is you know if i set a boundary i'm going to make somebody mad or i'm going to get labeled as being you know, the difficult girl in the office, or I'm going to end up, you know, my boss is not going to promote me or, you know, somehow there's going to be some sort of a negative consequence beyond just like that single transaction, maybe. <laughs> but in general, like how, how do you, what do you advise when women are scared to set the boundary? Sure. I mean, there's a few facets to that. And I'm really glad that you asked this. I, realistically, it's, I say a couple of things. First and foremost, think about how you feel. I'm a, I'm a mood detector. I'm very observant. So if something changes in the tone of someone's voice or the way they glance at me, I notice it right away. And I don't want to be like that. It's like a weird superpower that I don't want to have. But think about how you feel when people say, hey, like I, I, I need to change this about our friendship or like, hey, we've been going out like every day this week. I just need some space. Think about how you feel where you're like, telling yourself, I know it's not my fault, but this feels weird. It feels like a rejection. So keep that in mind when someone doesn't handle it well when you put up a boundary. And the best thing you can do is have a why. Every boundary should have a why, even if the why is it just doesn't make me feel comfortable. And if I figure it out 
a little bit more, I will let you know. People are not going to, not everyone's like, oh yeah, cool, boundary, respectful, sure. There's a huge difference between they didn't take it well because it was, it's, it's an adjustment for other people. There's a difference between that and someone who's like, wow, like, can I curse on this podcast? Yes, you may. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. <laughs> like literally, like there's a very big difference and people do that sometimes with their actions, right? They're like, they're like literally like, oh, F you. And they cross your boundary on purpose because they don't like the change and they take it personally. So mm. there's a huge difference. I would say the biggest thing that you can do is explaining your why and having your why. And that's part of making your boundary very clear. I don't answer texts past 9 p.m. from men because I was in a situation once where that just made me super uncomfortable. And now what makes me feel safe is keeping texting during daylight. That's what I do. Sorry. I'll text you in the morning. So like just just giving a why. You don't owe anybody an explanation. But if you want to keep that person in your life and you want there to be a, you know, a good su- sustainable relationship, it's good to explain that. Now, when it comes to the workplace, I think it's a little different because, you know, you do in your workplace want to go the extra mile and, and you know, you want to show off a little. You want to put your best foot forward. You want to get promoted. Like, that's the point. However, there does come a point where if you are being taken advantage of, a boundary isn't necessarily in the workplace. Well, I'm not doing that. That's not my job. It's sometimes getting to the point where you know internally what your boundaries are, what your limits are. And when you're doing another job, you know, when you're doing six roles for the price of one, I think it's important to have a conversation with your with whoever's just a little bit higher than you and let them know like, hey, listen, it can go one of two ways. I'm still happy to help in whatever way I can when my job I'm getting paid for is finished. But either I, you know, I do need a pay raise or I need some of this taken off. And that that's a boundary. Even a conversation can be a boundary too. So I would say, you know, you want to tread carefully. And if a workplace fires you for something like that, you don't, you don't want to work there. You'll be miserable for the rest of your life there. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. That's great advice. You just reminded me but back when I was in the high tech world, which I was for quite a long time before I started my family, because I did a good job, people would bring stuff to me to kind of add to my pile. And at mm-hmm. first, all because I was so excited that I was getting to do all these cool things. And then I, I reached the point where I just didn't have enough time. There wasn't enough me to go around. And I watched a, a training video done by John Cleese of Monty Python. Mm. And it was exactly about you know, dealing with situations like this. And I, I learned better how to deal with situations like that at work. And one of the, one of the techniques that I started using very successfully was, you know, I'm happy to do that for you. What would you like to take off my plate so that I have enough time for that? That's wonderful. That's very smart. And, and that's the thing. I, I learned this the hard way. I learned this because I was in a nonprofit where you know, when you are the administrative assistant, you are the warm body. And I think that's you know, really important to kind of keep in your head. So I was, you know, admin assistant, personal assistant to, to two people and then one person and then two people, nanny, finance admin, events coordinator, you know, I, I mean, marketing, video, photo, I mean, everything. And I was like, hold on a second, like I am netting less than $400 a week and I can't breathe. You know, and so I'd, I didn't have that language. And I think it's really important to have that language. And so that's, that's a huge key. Get yourself in the habit of boundaries as early as you can and in every area of life. Don't just have them in one area, have them everywhere. You will feel so much better. Yeah, I love that. This is exactly the kind of thing that I 
wanted my daughters to learn when they were in their early 20s. And I, I just really didn't see conversations happening too much with older women. Mm -hmm. These lessons. And that's that's one reason why I ask these questions is because I want this generation of young women to actually be be hearing from those of us that have gone through <laughs> a whole bunch of life, you know, what what we would have benefited from and what, you know, what our best insights are. So thank you. That's that was a great, great little diversion there into the world of boundaries. Thank you. Well, what exactly is your educational background and how did you end up becoming a coach? I've never been asked this question. I love it. So <laughs> I studied, well, first and foremost, I struggled with depression so bad as, as a young kid, as a young teenager. I ended up dropping out of high school my junior year, got my GED right away, and just kind of had like a year and a half to chill, really. So I worked and worked out a lot, but I dropped out of high school. I ended up going to college on time that I would have if I didn't drop out. So that was a really fun, you know, graduated on time as well. So it was really cool. I studied theology in college. Well, I went to a small private college and I was studying psychology and I just wasn't super happy there. And I went to go speak to an advisor about it. And, you know, I was like, oh, what about theology? That would be, oh, he said, excuse me, what about theology? That would be fun. You love to teach and, you know, you can always teach, you know, whatever perspective you'd like. It'd be really fun. It's kind of like philosophy. And one gentleman who was in the room in the back was like, no, honey, that's a man's major. And I was like, <laughs> and then I looked at my advisor. I was like, will you sign off on that? And he was like, yeah, I will. And I was like, perfect. So I, I studied theology for the next couple of years. You know, there was a lot of crap talked about me throughout the administration. The dean of my college wrote to my advisors and my professors and was like, do not get her hopes up. She will never graduate with this degree. And I did. I did it in four years. A lot of the staff was really great there because they they like backdated my classes. So I took like eight or nine classes in a semester, but then on paper they backdated it to make make it look like half of them were in the summer, so I wouldn't get in trouble. It was great. So I, when I did, I graduated. I was working with survivors of trafficking, and then got you know kind of headhunted for another nonprofit and so on. So I really had no experience in life coach anything like that until I hit rock bottom emotionally and personally and started getting into a lot of self-awareness practices because I just realized I couldn't, I didn't know how to fix what was going on within me because I didn't know what was going on, but I just knew I couldn't move forward. And at that point I was like, man, I don't know myself at all. And so I started getting into the Enneagram. I started reading a lot of books and, and learning and I knew my whole life I wanted to help people. I just didn't know how. And so eventually I kind of landed on life coach and someone basically pitched me, you know, I, I can help you get clients for $10,000 for three months. And I was like, girl, you don't know me. Like, you don't know how I work. You don't know my personality. You don't know anything about me. How are you going to help me get clients for my business? And that's when I worked the Enneagram into um, my coaching. Cause I was like, I don't want a one size fits all program. It doesn't work like that. I need to put more effort. Yes. But I want to work with people. I want to know who I'm working with. So that's why I integrated the Enneagram in there. Got certified in all those things, thought NLP would be cool as well. So I just threw that in the bucket. And so here we are. Wow, that is quite a path. Can you speak a little bit to, oh gosh, a couple of things. I mean, growing up with constant depression and how that led you really to looking for your own solutions and answers. Mm. It sounds like in eventually became the thing that you, because you did the work yourself, you developed 
the knowledge and, and then the desire to actually help other people who have experienced the same kind of thing. Can you dig into that a little? Yeah, absolutely. I, I started noticing depression in my life when I was like 12. And when I say I started noticing it, like as an adult, I look back and thought it was at 16, but it started at 12. And I was just, I think from that point, actually, I just realized that I didn't know myself. And let's be honest, in the Middle Eastern culture, uniqueness is not necessarily celebrated. It's very much, especially if, if they've migrated to the United States for a better life, it's kind of like, no, 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 American dream. You work, you stay at your job, you get married, you have children, they have, you know, you have children, they get, they grow up, they go to school, all that stuff. So I, I kind of just felt very minimized and like I didn't know myself and I just was just sad all the time. And I was the happiest girl. I was funny. I was voted class clown in eighth grade. Like I was, I was, a, I was a hoot, but I was just so miserable. And then, um, I think when I, you know, when I was 16 is when I was assaulted and, um, I remember my mood completely shifted and I just was very hateful. I just wanted to drink all the time with my friends and I wanted to go out and do drugs and all that. And instead of my mom taking a step back and being like, we didn't raise her like this. Something's not right. She was just like ready to sign custody over to me uh, of me to my strict uncle. And so I kind of, you know, I had the conversation with her a couple years ago where I told her actually what happened that led to those events and things like that. And she was like, you know, I had no idea and I'm sorry. And, you know, I did what I felt like my parents would have done for me and I didn't know anything else. And I understood that completely. I've healed from that. But I think from 16 and on, you know, the trauma of what happened, barely remembering what happened, you know, but my body remembered the trauma, not being wanted by my mom, feeling like a failure. I was just like, you know what, screw it. And so I would go out, I would party, I'd go crazy, and then I would be depressed for days. And so I remember there was like a season where I started my junior year of high school and I just, I, there was like a, I just couldn't get out of bed. I had knots in my hair. I was just terrible. I, didn't, my, I was living with my dad who I love him. God rest his soul. He's passed since then. He was a pushover. So he didn't care. I'd be like, dad, I'm cold. I don't want to go to school. And he'd be like, okay. You know? Um, so one day, you know, they called my parents and, you know, they were like, she's got to repeat this grade. She's missed 15 days or she can drop out. And I looked at my mom and I was like, I'm not repeating shit. Like drop me out. And so they dropped me out and I got my GED, but I really like that year, I just was so depressed. And when I wasn't feeling depressed, I, I felt like I had to feel lows because I didn't know really how to feel highs or anything like that. I couldn't really understand it without drinking or without drugs or anything. So I would have moments, let's say like a period of like a month where my depression was like, okay, but I was really focused on like starving myself or, you know, so it was just, it was escalating like crazy. And, you know, when I was 18, I just, it's not like it disappeared. I still had a lot of those tendencies, but I got a completely different group of friends who were mainly adults or older, a little bit farther along in life, some married with kids. And I think I started to shift out of certain mindsets and, and start to understand a lot of what I was struggling with had solutions to them. And when those were out of the way, right, right in my early 20s is when a lot of my suppressed memories, like the memory of my assault and things like that started coming back to heal. So I, essentially the timeline was like that I solved all the problems I could solve, but depression really wouldn't let me see a solution. And when that was out of the way, the real healing internally began. And so 
I was like, wow, if only I had somebody who could see from the outside in what my mom didn't see. If only I had someone who could see from the outside in that this girl who was 18 didn't just know how to not set a table properly, you know, or have a family that she felt valued in, but something happened to her, you know, and I've always had that eye for people maybe because I've been there. Mm -hmm. But I was like, you know, I, I can't let this response, not responsibility. I can't let this gift go to waste. And that was kind of, yeah, it's a little bit about, no one's ever asked me that question before, honestly. So I appreciate you sticking through. I think I was long-winded there. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's very powerful. And I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, a whole bunch of things that are, I think, really important. One was like your mother didn't really see what was going on. And I, I have had an experience of that myself with one of my kids where there was, there was something going on in a relationship that was actually very abusive and I had no idea. And when I found out later, I was just stunned because I mean, of all people who should be able to see the signs and recognize that, that something was going on that wasn't good, it should have been me. Right. Right. And, and that's the thing, like, there's no shame for like you or for my mom. I think at the end of the day, I think I just, I was so polar opposite from who they had raised me to be that I think I, I would have been shocked if I was like, all right, I would have sat you down and been like, girl, what's going on? But it's never to shame any moms. Like your job is to love us as best you can. And that's, you know, if that's what you got, that's what you got, you know? Yes. And also, I mean, I had also children who, who went through a phase of drugs and alcohol and craziness and it's hard as the parent navigating through that because you don't know, like, was this just them kind of experimenting and exploring or is this, you know, as with you, was this something that was actually covering up a traumatic event that had happened? Hmm. Yeah. You don't know. Yeah, that's true. You don't. You mentioned something about repressed memories. Can you Talk about that just a little bit. I, I haven't really met anybody that has actually had that experience in their own lives of, of sort of recovering memories of something. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know the technical science behind it, but here's what I know in a nutshell that I would explain to an eight-year-old. Sometimes when things happen to you that you can't grasp or understand or your body just wants to get out of there alive, your brain will hide the memory from you in a pocket and bring it to you when it knows you're ready to deal with it. So that's pretty much what happened. I didn't, I didn't understand the concept either. So when I was 16, I, if you don't mind, I'll go into the story. It was my birthday, my 16, my sweet 16. And I went to a party and my boyfriend was not there. And I was taken advantage of by one of his friends. I was pushed into a bathroom and it was, it was terrible. And or excuse me, he attempted to take advantage because by the time he pulled his pants down, I the only thing I could think of because I was drinking was I'm going to stick my fingers down his throat, down my throat. And so I stuck my fingers down my throat and I threw up on his penis. Before <laughs> he, yeah. It's disgusting when I think about it, but that was, that was a great, that was a great day. So I uh, left there crying, went to my boyfriend's house, sobbing. He, um, you know, he let me tell him the story. His mom came down at some point and was like, are you okay? They gave me new clothes because it was raining out. I woke up the next morning. They drove me home. And the next day, my boyfriend said, hey, like, you know, please don't tell the cops. And I was like, okay, because you're my boyfriend. I trust you and I love you. That's the story I remembered. And when I was 21, I was on the way home from college. I was driving down the turnpike and 
I felt like a screen pulled out in front of my face. And at that point, I had been doing a lot of healing and self-growth and self-help and just really just growing into myself. And so it wasn't didn't strike me as weird in hindsight that my brain brought it up. But I felt like I saw pictures in front of my face and I just pulled over because I was like, okay, what's going on with me? And I remembered a lot of missing pieces. So everything that happened in the beginning happened. I was taken to my boyfriend's house. When I got there, I was trying to explain to him what happened. And he kept telling me to like shush and to calm down. He started slowly taking off my clothes. He wasn't listening to me. I started panicking. I was trying to, I was like, no, I need you to listen to me. I need you to listen to what just happened. And I had no clothes on except I think a tank top and his mom started coming down the stairs. So he like threw me outside in the rain. She opened the door. She found me in the rain, started flipping out on him because she knew exactly what was happening made him get me new clothes. And then I told her the story of what happened at the party. And he was just an earshot and he was shocked because he didn't know that's what happened. Then that night, you know, I went to sleep in their guest bedroom. I woke up in the middle of the night and he was like on top of me inside of me. And his mom walked in and like flipped out, like threw him off of me. And I was just like completely in shock. And the next morning, his mom came into the room, sat me down, you know, was like, are you okay? Something very similar happened to me, you know, back when I was your age and, you know, how are you doing? You know, and was kind of like, you know, I didn't, you know, a lot of moms with kids my age, they say, oh, we raised such young men. And she's like, no, we raised pigs, like men are pigs. And I don't necessarily agree with that sentiment, but, um, you know, she, she like was nodding at the fact that she understood what happened. They drove me home and then he texted me and said, don't call the cops. So all of these things filled in the blanks. I was like, okay, his mom was talking about her son. When he said, don't tell the cops, he was talking about himself. All these gaps started filling in and I, Cynthia, I lost it. Like I, I was like, am I making this up? Did it, you know, and I felt, it felt real in my body. I want, I was so sick. I called, you know, like one of my friends and just kind of sat her down immediately and like needed to get it out of my system. But it was a very weird concept. And I don't think I really resonated with it until a few years later when other memories from my childhood and relation, abusive relationship with him started coming back up. Um, and then I was like, okay, this is something that my brain and my body does. And so that it was just very interesting. The first time was the most traumatic. I feel like even now I feel like a little nauseous just thinking about that first moment, not really sure what's going on. And then seeing in front of me this this thing that I'm thinking is such a filthy thought and I'm like no 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 that actually happened so it was it was a very weird moment for me wow how many layers you know you you had to sort of go through to get to what the truth actually was mhm and you know i mean the, the your initial memory of of what had happened was bad enough but I, I can just imagine how horrifying it was to discover how much more there really was to the whole the whole sequence of events. Yeah. Well, I'm curious then you talked about wanting to discover more about yourself as part of part of the process and part of the healing process. So was that when you started studying the Enneagram? Yeah, that was exactly it. I I had this little apartment that I'll never forget this. Like it had um it was really tiny like the size of a closet, but it had a view of New York City, so I was fine with it. And I was sitting in the bathroom like it was so small that I could sit on the toilet but also put my feet up on the tub. Like <laughs> yeah. So, I was sitting there and I was scrolling through like 
so I don't remember what I was looking through, but I think it was like a bustle article or something that was just like, oh, something based on your Enneagram type. And I was like, what the heck is that? So I looked it up online, you know, what it was. And it was like personality typing. I was like, okay, I took an online test, typed as an eight. I was like, this makes sense, but doesn't fit me. No, took it again, typed as an eight, took it again, typed as a six. I was like, okay, this is bullshit. I'm not doing this anymore. And then it came up within the next couple of months um, by a friend. She's like, oh, you should look into this. Like, I was like, oh, I took an online test. It was inconsistent. She's like, buy a book. So I bought a book and I read the description for my type, the type two, which I think you are as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I read the description for the type two, the helper, the advocate, the person who feels like they need to give in order to get, who really just needs to feel like they're this indispensable person and really like loves to be there for people and hopes that someone will hear them and be there for that. And I so yeah, I did not eat for two days. I did not talk to anyone for days. I didn't eat. I didn't, excuse me, I didn't sleep. I was like weeping because I felt like for the first time I was, I got what I wanted. I was able to see and understand myself, but it felt so shameful. It felt so weird. And then I started to read more into it. I read more books. I started taking classes online. I started doing all these different things about the Enneagram and started to realize okay, actually the things that I don't like about my type or the things I only do when I'm under stressed, excuse me, under stress or feeling really unhealthy, but there are a million good things about me. And all I have to do is focus on being the best version of myself so that I can get there. And that's when that journey started where I was like, I actually have control over this. Hang on a second. (laughs) And it was just a weird realization. And I love where that realization spiraled me into. That's fascinating. I can just see, you know, your process is is such an interesting process. And I can see very clearly how, you know, sort of the quote coincidence of mm-hmm. bumping into that opened up a whole new world that turned out to be exactly what you needed. Yeah. It was it was it was a beautiful and wonderful thing to be honest. How did you I mean if I'm not trying to interview you, but how did you get into the Enneagram? Well, you know, I have not done nearly enough with it. It's just something, you know, that has come up a couple of times, especially in talking with other women who are in the coaching field, because I met several people who do use Enneagrams and and I did go through and find out what mine was. And as you were talking, I was like, now what was mine again? What was mine again? And I'm I'm really glad you remembered from our first conversation what it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know enough about it and I really haven't dug into it the way you did, but it sounds as though I probably should. Mm, it's it's a really great tool. I think I do think you have to be in a specific season of life to come across it. Like you can read it and be like, oh, cool. It's kind of a similar, you know, it's similar to like BuzzFeed's quiz, like what pasta are you? Like you, in one year and out the other. <laughs> but if you're ready for a journey and if you already have some level of um, I'm okay dealing with the pain and the shame and the guilt of being who I am and who I've, you know, we all to a certain extent like, you know, bend the page and close the book on parts of ourselves that we don't like. And if you're ready to see those and deal with those face to face, pick up another book and go for it. You know, so it's, it's, you have to be in a certain season of life, I think, to really go full throttle with it. But it really is, it was, it's been such a beautiful experience and I'm still learning every day. So how, how did learning about that help you process through, you know, those multiple experiences of, of getting reminded of and, and learning more about the trauma that you had experienced. Sure. So I think first and foremost, talking about the relationship that I was in, that was obviously at the forefront of my mind. I was still healing from from what had happened there. He, he, he also, 
I think, you know, I looking, he was a great person individually. He had a great family, but he needed to have control over everything else in his life and, him, and himself. So I, I can see why he did a lot of what he did. He gaslighted me tremendously. So really I just, I focused a lot on that relationship and mainly what made me stay and what made me go back. Cause I stayed with him after that night. I mean, again, I didn't really remember what happened, but, um, I stayed and I kept going back and I would rec- it, it got to that point where I recognized behaviors for what they were, but I kept going back. And the Enneagram like pointed out to me, like, you're getting your validation from that one time he needs something from you. And then he's validating you for helping him or he's validating you for being there for him. And you're literally sucking the worth out of that and saying, this is why I stay. And I, I noticed that in that situation, I, I, it gave me, you know, having compassion for myself as an Enneagram type gave me a lot of compassion for my mom so we could have that conversation and just kind of, and my mom and I are in the, like, we're the best friends, you know, now. So it's, it's, it really shaped, how do I say this? It gave me this, a different lens to look through because for most of my life, I'd look through this lens without knowing my Enneagram type that was like, okay, I'm really only worth what I, what I can give to people. And I put a new set of glasses on essentially that gave me compassion for myself and a completely different worldview. And so I started to see relationships or, you know, you know, relationship with my mom or things that happened to my family, things that happened as a, as a child and how I reacted to them as a teenager, all of these different things through a different, like I understood my worldview when assessing all those situations. And so I was able to first and foremost, and most importantly, forgive myself for handling things the way I did because I was not self-aware. I was able to create self-trust again. And, you know, from then on, it's like rumble strips, right? They help you recognize when you're veering off because that's, it's a very, very slow distinction. Every time you veer off just a little bit, just a little bit, you don't even know you're on the side. It really helps you get back into place now when you know it. So it's just, I look at the trajectory of my life and realize I was looking through a glass dimly and trying to assess real life situations, real adult situations, but I didn't know anything about myself. And so what the Enneagram did was it just opened up, put a light bulb in, clean that little dim glass off. And I was able to see things a little bit more clearly. That's, that's a great metaphor. It's so clear. And I love, you know, the, the analogy with the rumble strips that makes so much sense to me. I am absolutely intrigued. Can you speak a little bit about the neuro-linguistic programming and how that has played into your path? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, and it's honestly a lot more simple than people make it out to. They're like, oh, neuro-linguistic, can't touch that, you know? And really, okay, so it's like neuro, your brain, linguistic, your language, programming, your behavior. So it's the combination, you know, how all those things are combined. And essentially, when you think about neuro-linguistic programming, you hear something, you see something, you experience something, and it sets the tone for the next thing. So if you and I are having a conversation, I'm not really necessarily hearing what you're saying. I am understanding it in concept because my brain, as soon as I hear it, deletes half of the language and replaces it with thoughts and concepts that I will understand. So it's, it's, my brain is constantly contextualizing it to my previous experiences. So that's why people who are victims of something but haven't really gone through healing see everything as a victimization. They see everything as pinning against them because that's, that's the contextualization their brain is bringing them. So really what that's not really helped me on my healing journey personally, but I use that a lot with clients when I start to see 
how they angle everything I say to a certain, like it starts to lean all towards finances, all towards finances, all towards, and I'm like, hey, like, what's your relationship like with money? So it's really just like a, it's like a rabbit trail in a sense. It's like a little breadcrumb trail that helps me to kind of figure out what's going on in the back, the back of this person's mind. What experiences are they using to contextualize every situation? So can you change the context? Yes. It's a conscious effort. I think that's where neuroplasticity comes into play, where um, when you start to think a thought long enough, it actually restructures and rewires this, you know, the cellular and physical shape of your brain. How do I say this? If you tell yourself that you're stupid for 15 years straight, it's not enough to just stop telling yourself that you're dumb because you already think you are. Your brain has literally changed its shape to a new reality. So it's important to like go back and actually do the opposite. Actually, I'm the most intelligent person I know. I tell myself that every morning. I'm like, I'm the most intelligent person I know. So changing that is not wiping away that experience, but saying something like that experience built me and made me better. That experience built me and made me better. And you say that long enough, your brain starts to re like rewire cellular change, physically change, and it, it changes the trajectory and the outcome of what you understand, how you hear, and how you speak. Wow. That's really powerful. It is, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. I'm, I've got all kinds of little tangents buzzing around in my head right now. <laughs> if we go down all of them, though, then we'll be talking for another two hours. So I know. <sighs> Can you talk a little bit about, well, what emotional intelligence is and how you can develop it and why you even care? Okay. Yeah. So um, emotional intelligence is basically being able to read the room outside yourself. So it's literally taking your experiences out and putting them like on a shelf or in your back pocket for a second to see the other person without you. So people who struggle with emotional intelligence tend to feel like everything's targeted at them or they hear things in the context of how it affects them. And that's, you know, it's a self-preservation thing, sure. But emotional intelligence is seeing what that person's doing as an isolated event. And emotional intelligence, the reason I, I honestly, the reason I care is because your emotional intelligence, whether people realize it or not, is highly indicative of their level of self-awareness. So people say like, oh, we're going to work on emotional intelligence as a, as a group, as, a, as an office, as a team or whatever. And it's like, can you, can you guys take a 10 minute break and work on yourselves first? Because if you're, if your self-awareness is at a zero, so is your emotional intelligence. And there's no such thing as your self-awareness being at, at a three and your emotional intelligence being at like a hundred. If you don't know yourself enough to say, okay, this has nothing to do with me and put it to the side, you're never going to be able to read the other person. So I think, you know, I think that's what spiraled me into being like, wow, people are really shooting themselves in the foot before the race starts when it comes to relationships and, and conversations and their, their sphere of influence because they don't know themselves. So how do you develop self-awareness then? I think, you know, there's, it is a trajectory over years. It's through processes like the Enneagram, but I tell people this, if you want to start and you're not really sure where and you're kind of afraid, ask yourself why constantly. So I love to give this example. If you walk into your house and you walk into the kitchen and there's a sink full of dishes and your husband's sitting in his boxers on the couch and you get frustrated, well, why? Well, there's a sink full of dishes. Well, why does that frustrate you? Because he's just sitting there. Well, why does it frustrate you that he's just sitting there? There's a sink full of dishes because I'm the only freaking adult around here who does anything. 
and there you have it. So if you constantly ask yourself why until you strike a pot of gold, you can figure out the core issues. So you can, it makes communication a breeze. Like, honey, like I know you probably had a really long day. It really just makes me feel like I'm the only adult around here sometimes when I get home and there's a sink full of dishes and you have, and you're just sitting there. So would you mind being able to do them? Like, you know, things like that. It makes communication a breeze because most people don't understand what they can't rationalize and they can't rationalize it if you can't. So if you don't know what's going on with you and you don't know why, they're, you're, they're sure as hell not going to understand what's going on with you. So it's, it's super important to I – start, I started with that personally. I, I, I don't know where it came from, but I just started asking myself why. Like, why am I annoyed at my roommate's up and down emotions? Well, because she's taking them out on me. Well, why does it matter if she's taking it on you? Because it feels like an attack on my personality. Well, why does it feel like an attack? Um, because I guess I'm insecure in some areas. Like, you know? So it, it's just like a little train of thought. But asking yourself why when you start to feel something that bothers you is highly indicative of a self-awareness journey. You could go on very quickly. I love that. And there are so many parallels between all of the things that you're talking about and what I do when I work with women in the whole realm of self-defense and personal safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, understanding, well, let me back up. Like anybody who's been in a situation where they felt like something was off or that somehow things were not quite right. You know, they've had a bad feeling about a person or a situation. Like all of us can recognize that because we've all had that experience. And um, coach Tony Blauer, who is one of the men that I have worked with for many, many years, he, he always says like every victim of violence who lived to tell the tale got a bad feeling first. Yeah. The thing that we do is we rationalize it away and we say, oh, that couldn't possibly be true or I must be mistaken or, you know, and, and so for us to actually honor that and say, well, hang on, we're getting that bad feeling. We're getting that level of discomfort for a reason. You know, it's not a fluke. And then to do what you just said, which is ask that question why? Because, you know, the intuition makes incredible leaps and associations that aren't always obvious. And so we can't instantly answer the question, why do I feel uncomfortable around this person? Or mm-hmm. do I feel so anxious about walking to my car right now? You know, and, and the reason that we can't answer it right away is because our brains are taking in all kinds of information through our senses and, and not consciously processing it all. But mm-hmm. enough that our intuition can go, and eh, there's something not right here. So doing that process that you were saying of just saying why is really, really helpful. If you have the time, (laughs) you know, uh, maybe you do it in hindsight. Like, why did I feel so uncomfortable about, you know, the fact that I was about ready to leave work and I knew I needed to walk to my car in the parking lot, but I just felt really scared to do it. You know, absolutely. when you walked out safely, you know, you can look back later and say, why? Well, actually, I think the light at the corner of the parking lot was out and I heard a strange sound in the corridor, you know, as I was opening up my office door and you can start to, you know, if you're, if you're aware and you start asking that question of why you can sometimes walk back and, and start to recognize those things that triggered that bad feeling. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Oh my goodness. I love that. And and that's the thing, like a lot of people, it's, it's a practice. Like the the first time you ask someone that they're like, I just don't know. Okay. Like, and, and that's, that's valid. Like you don't know, but keep, keep trying, keep trying at it. And then eventually you realize, oh, it's, it's because the lamp was out. It's because I heard that strange noise. Like, and that is a practice. And 
you will stink the first time you put your fingers on top of a piano's keys, but not by the seventh or eighth time, not by the tenth time, not by the hundredth time, right? So it's just a practice. Yes. And the other thing that came up for me is, as I was listening to you was, you know, what you get to when you ask that series of questions of why is you get to a belief. Mm-hmm. And it may not be a true belief. It could be a false belief. And this comes up all the time when, when I'm teaching about how to navigate through fear. We talk about false beliefs and we talk about false expectations and false evidence. And it's interesting because in, in the self-defense world, we have a lot of false beliefs. A really common one is if I get shot, I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. And that seems perfectly reasonable. You know, it's like I'm scared because I think I'm going to get shot. Why does that scare you? Because I think I'm going to die. Why do you think that? Well, I've seen it in the movies 5,000 times. Right. You know, and if you kind of follow that trail down and you start asking yourself, well, is that true? You know, that's kind of the second question is, is that true or is it not? Do you have any evidence to support that that is true or not? And then, you know, you, you start to do the research and it's like, well, actually, there is a mountain of evidence of people who have actually experienced being shot and who have not died. You know, there's plenty of evidence. Talk to any cop, you know, uh, who's dealt with somebody who got shot because they were attacking an officer and they kept on coming. Maybe they were on drugs or something and they just, they were so amped up. They didn't feel it. You know, there's tons right. of says that no, getting shot is not an automatic death sentence right there on the spot. But if you can't, ask those questions and dig a little deeper. You never know that what is actually inhibiting you and keeping you from taking any kind of positive steps is actually rooted in something that's not true. A hundred percent. That's so good. I love that. I love that connection with, you know, connecting real facts to real fears, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I just, I love, you know, the ways that, that you and I overlap. It's, it's, just fascinating. It is. <laughs> um, gosh, I have so many questions. <laughs> Ask all of them. It's okay. <laughs> so tell me about the work that you did with the survivors of human trafficking. Ooh, okay. Um, well, so first of all, it, it was just sex trafficking and it was mainly women that I worked with. First and foremost, I worked with prevention education. So at that point, I was in college, I was finishing an internship there um, with an organization that unfortunately is no longer um, in existence, but we're doing prevention education. We would go to schools, we would talk to nurses, we would talk to parents and communities and tell them what to look for. And, and it, it taught me a lot about how I saw sex trafficking. Like, you know, we often think it's minorities, we think it's in the projects. And while those people tend to be more at risk, it could be anyone. And so I, I heard the story of a little girl from Princeton, New Jersey, really, really wealthy town. Um, parents both racking in over 100k a year and she was trafficked you know blonde hair blue eyes and she was trafficked at the age of three by her grandfather so she starts yeah you start to hear these stories and you're like okay there's got to be more to this than the movie taken not everyone is like shoved into a cab has a needle stuck in their arm and is chained to a wall and Liam Neeson's your dad like that doesn't that's just not reality and so eventually you know while learning these stories, I started to, I think, understand a little bit more about what happened to me, about my abuse and all of that kind of stuff. I even started to think like, 
you know, I found out later in later years that my boyfriend was okay with what his friend was doing. Um, was I think he'd like they maybe they talked about it earlier. I'm not really sure, but I it, the the realization that if they had exchanged money, I would have technically been trafficked. So it was just an interesting concept. And then eventually, outside of co- after college, I worked at a a home with survivors of trafficking, and that was just the most surreal experience to sit across the table from women when I would go there and have a cup of coffee and to hear the story of a woman who you know she had children and she was displaced from her home. And her child's um, second grade teacher was like, you know, I live in a two-family home. You guys can stay there until, until you're back on your feet. And ended up, she ended up being trafficked by her child's second grade teacher. Or, you know, just the mounds of stories. And it, it just taught me so much. But eventually, actually, like my body started to, um, I think I had not fully healed at that time. And my body started to, I don't want to say give out. I wasn't dying. But I remember one time I pulled up to the house that I was working at and I don't know how I did it. I just very carefully got out of the car, went into the house and my boss was there and I was like, Karen, I, I can't see out of one eye. And so she took me to the ER and eventually like it started, I, my vision started to come back and my joints started hurting. And then the doctor kicked everyone out and was like, are you safe at home? Like, are you okay? Your body's under a tremendous amount of stress. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, dude. Like get away from me. And he was like, he was like, you know, your body is throwing a tantrum because your body's keeping your secrets. And it was kind of at that point, you know, working with these survivors that I realized that I needed to take a step back and really heal myself in order to help other people on their healing journey. And I've considered even recently, like, should I go back? Should I apply again for that job? I know that they would love to have me and and all that kind of stuff. But working with the survivors really pushed me along my healing journey. But it was a shock to the system to hear um, that it's not what you think it is and that, you know, the supply and demand culture is absolutely insane. And people are saying we should legalize sex work. And, you know, I personally, I don't agree with that. <laughs> I don't, because nine times out of 10, a woman thinks she's prostituting herself and then comes to find out years later that she wasn't getting all of her money. She was, she had a pimp and she didn't realize it. And so, try, you know, it's just, it's absolutely crazy, but it's a lot more common than people think. And so that was kind of my experience there. What were some of the things that you shared with with parents and and I suppose with kids as well about how to avoid it in the first place or how to recognize that it might be going on? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I think making it very clear what it what trafficking is. So saying, yeah, trafficking is what you saw in the movie Taken, but trafficking is also child pornography. There's no, I don't know about other states in the state of New Jersey, there's no such thing as child porn or child prostitution. It's all sex trafficking. So getting them acclimated with different ideas outside of what they think it is, and then starting to teach them some facts. So who is more at risk than other people? Ever, everyone who's vulnerable at any point is at risk, but people who've got parents who've struggled with substance abuse or people in the foster care system, um, kids who are in the LGBTQ community are t- tend to be more at risk. And so just spreading that awareness and then saying, okay, if, if you know a friend, right, to, speaking to high school kids, if you know a friend who always says that they don't have money that their boss or their boyfriend has it, or if you see three or four plan B pills in their purse at all times, or if, they, if their story changes every time that you ask them where they live or where their parents are, things like that, you know, we, we would teach them the difference between a pimp and a trafficker, which is nothing, right? So 
right? We're, we're totally idolizing 50 Cent, that song P-I-M-P. It's very, very catchy, but a pimp and a trafficker are the same thing. And just painting a picture of what the reality is, because if you know the reality, then you see it. You know, I, I actually had an experience more recently where um, I walked into a police station screaming my head off. Because I was like, there is a brothel right next to the church I used to go to, and no one's doing anything about it. And then they were like, How do you know it's a brothel? You don't know this. And you know, and I sat them down and they took me to a back office rather, and they allowed me to teach them. And, you know, I love cops, but they have to remember a lot more than we have to remember in a day. They have to remember codes and, and laws, and those things change every year. And I just I feel so bad for them. So they didn't know. They didn't know any of the laws in the state of New Jersey. They didn't know any of that stuff. So I I explained to them all of the reasons that I could see that this spa, even not being inside ever, was a brothel. I started to take them through it. I was like, why is there a man paying in cash when their closing time is 9 and it's 11 p.m.? Why are their windows boarded up with stickers? Why is the front empty and not decorated? Why are there two doors to get to the main part of the salon? Like, why? And then I can find out years later it got busted as a brothel. So <laughs> it's, it's interesting. You know, people just don't know what they're looking for. I like to compare it to like a topic like um, like like modern day racism, right? Like people don't really know what they're looking for, so they don't really know if it's there or not. But once you when you, once you start to understand something like sex trafficking and how it's right under your nose, you can start to see, oh, maybe this is not sex trafficking, but this definitely drives the supply and demand culture. You know that that kind of thing, just opening and broadening their view from what they think it was to what it actually is. Hmm. Hmm. Yes, and and I think one element of that is that you know, in society as a whole, I think there is a false belief that like that kind of stuff doesn't happen here anymore. Like, you know, everybody is, you know, basic needs are well taken care of. We're a wealthy, prosperous nation with, you know, equal rights and all of these other wonderful things. You know, we're too good for that kind of thing to be happening near us. And that is such a false <laughs> view. Yeah. Because the surface may look like everything is peachy keen and fine and everybody's doing really well and being happy, healthy, and prosperous, but just right underneath the surface, if you just scratch it a little. And like you said, if you know what to look for, you can see that all of those things, those those aspects of the aspects of evil, you know, aspects of bad mm-hmm. human behavior, they're all right there. A hundred percent. And you know what's crazy? People are like, no, 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 our nation is amazing. And I'm like, okay, can you guess where the highest statistics of sex trafficking are? Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. There's a lot of politicians. There's a lot of people who are stressed out. There's a lot of people. It's mainly there. So people, you know, it's just right under their nose. It's a lucrative. It's in this country, it's very low risk, high profit. You can sell a drug once, you can sell a person 30,000 times. you know, and, and I think it's Sweden. I think they call it the Swedish model. They did the most incredible thing. They made their laws backwards. So they made the selling of sex legal and the buying of sex illegal so that people would have less incentive to want to buy sex. And if they did, they were able to, you know, talk to those women who were prostitutes to see if they were actually being trafficked or not. But really, when you victimize, or rather, when you incentivize the you know, a crime as, you know, the buying of sex, people stop buying. And that's it. Trafficking kind of died overnight. And in the States here, the selling of sex is illegal and the purchasing of sex is, I don't know if it's legal or not, but it's just really not taken into account. So 
women who are being trafficked are thrown into jail, being bailed out by their pimps and going right back to where they came from on the street. Right. So it, it's a completely different system. I had never really thought about making a distinction between the selling and the buying. Yeah. It's, and it's a, it's a big one when it comes down to the justice system, right? Like if you, you can look at selling, you can look at buying and you're like, okay, well, if I really want to change things from a certain level, like I have to look at why this business still stands and it's because it's low risk and high profit. Yeah. Well, I want to circle back to something that um, when you were talking about the physiological effect that being in the house and working with these survivors was having on you, it, it brought to mind two women that I've had on the show. And I would suggest to anybody to go back and listen to these two episodes because, and I'll tell you what the, the numbers are <laughs> in a moment. Um, but they work in a field called somatic experiencing. Mm -hmm. And that is the whole foundation of it is that your, your experiences, especially trauma and abuse, do take up residence in the body. And you can do talk therapy if you want to, and that's quite helpful for many people. But until you deal with where that trauma and abuse is held in your body, you're not really going to be able to heal completely. And I just, I'm curious if you ever did any of that kind of work or thought about doing anything like that. And, you know, if, because I think that it makes, well, I don't think that it does make sense to me that because you had also experienced trauma and abuse, being in an environment where women were survivors of sexual trauma, basically, it would sort of rub up against and, and mm -hmm. those parts of you that you hadn't had the opportunity to deal with. Does that make sense? Oh, a hundred percent. And, and thank you for bringing it up. I did go to counseling right after, I mean, cause my mom did not know what had happened and to disclaim, I was never taught about sex because sex was this, you know, you do it when you got married and that's it. And so we don't talk about sex at all, um, especially in the Middle Eastern culture. So I went to therapy and I knew that, you know, I knew the rights I had as long as I wasn't going to kill myself or kill anyone else were good. So I could tell her anything. And I told her what happened with my, with my ex and she never called it rape. I did not understand that it was rape until I was, you know, I think up until like two years ago. Um, so it was just a very weird coming out of my mouth, but she never, so I, I didn't really find much help in counseling because, you know, I think my, my mom had spoken to her and was like, oh, she's having problems at home. And so she really wanted to focus on those. And I was like, someone slept with me while I was sleeping. Like, can we talk about that? And she would be like, what's going on at home? So I, it, it wasn't very helpful. And being young and being, you know, being a kid, being able, being unable to tell my mom what had really happened because I was afraid that she would see this tarnished view of me. We were never taught about sex. How'd you know to do that? How'd you allow this to happen? Uh, she, that was not her reaction at all, but that's what I thought. So I didn't really do any counseling. I didn't do any kind of somatic experience. I mean, I am always telling myself, you know, to go to like do EDMR. I, I, I haven't and I hadn't. Um, I was left to my own devices. I 100% recommend and back going, go, go get outside help. But I was, I was really going at it alone, unfortunately, just due to my circumstances and my upbringing. And so 
Um, I'm in a place now where I honestly do feel like through a lot of what I've listened to and read and experienced and worked through and all that, that I am really in a great place regarding it. I would love to, I mean, still go to a professional and just have them have the final say, but, um, I, I never, I never did. I really went at it alone and I don't recommend that for anybody. It was an incredibly scary and lonely journey. And I had a million friends. I had a few friends who knew what happened. They knew everything, but it's still incredibly lonely. So I really recommend getting that professional help. And you're right. Like working with these survivors did ru- kind of rub up against, and it wasn't their fault. It was just that I had not gotten any help. And that really spiraled me into a healing and self-awareness journey. But that is not a duplicate for professional help at all. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's why I'm so grateful that you were willing to share in such detail what what really you experienced, you know, what you thought you experienced and then what you actually experienced. Mm -hmm. I do agree. I mean, it's such a lonely thing. And that's one reason why I do this show is because I want women to be able to hear about resources and ways that you can actually move through an experience of trauma or abuse and and get healed and and get to a better, you know, a healthier, happier place. The two episodes that I was referring to are number 20, which was back in January, good heavens, uh, with Laura Eisenberg, and then episode 27, which is with Josea Tamira Crossley. So I would um, definitely recommend to anybody who's interested in learning more about how you can uh, process traumatic experiences through working with the body, uh, go and, and listen to those. And those two women are just amazing and are totally open to having a conversation if you reach out to them. So I just want to want to put that out there too. Awesome. I wrote that down too, because I'm, I'm excited to go listen to them. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so what is the most common challenge that women are dealing with when they come to work with you? Ooh, man, self-sabotage. And it, it comes from a whole host of things, but if I could put it all into one category, the highest would be self-sabotage, which comes from lack of self-awareness, which comes from fear, which comes from worldviews. But, you know, I, I hate to say this, but most of my first interactions with people who end up becoming my clients are, you're not hitting a wall, you are the wall. And they're like, helping, you know? And so it, it's mainly self-sabotage. That comes from a whole host of things. I mean, that's, I'm afraid of success. I'm afraid to not be successful. I'm afraid this relationship's going to go somewhere. I'm afraid this is not going to go somewhere. I'm, you know, it's, no matter how you slice it, we all attempt to sabotage ourselves in different ways, even if we don't want to, even if we want ourselves to succeed. So that's like the main thing, the, the main presenting thing that people come up with. And so if you were to give some quick tips on how to, how to recognize that and then what you can do to start working with it. What, what would you say? I mean, the first, the first thing that I would say that if you're a person that, you know, most people who self-sabotage tend to know that they self-sabotage. So I would say, you know, make a list of the things that you're hesitant about and then put them into one of two categories. Is this fear or is it an actual risk? Because if you're feeling fear about something, you need to like stop for a second and you can evaluate from there what kind of fear you're feeling based on what you're attempting to sabotage. But if it's an actual risk, like a detriment to my health, a financial risk, all that stuff, those are actual worries. It helps people to make rational decisions instead of thinking about themselves or their successes. So if you want to start a business, if you want to say yes to that second date, a lot of people make these lists and they group it into, is it fear or is it an actual tangible risk? And they take 
these risks into account, but then they look at the fears and go, okay, like why the heck am I afraid of this? Or why is this a really big fear? And then start to rework and uproot and unlearn and relearn what was going on there. So like if your fear of failure, like some people will self-sabotage their businesses and their fear is fear of success. And they're like, why the heck am I afraid of success? And then you find out later that they had a parent or a family member who, you know, had a lot of money and squandered it away without telling anybody. So there's so many things that people do in order to protect themselves. I would say whatever is making you hesitant, put it into a category of, is it a fear that I need to like think through or is it an actual tangible risk to my well-being? Mm -hmm. And again, you're back to asking that question, why, what and why? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And I got to be honest, like working with navigating through fear is one of my absolute favorite things to do. Mm -hmm. Because once you get comfortable navigating through fear, you can navigate through anything. Yeah, 100%. I mean, most of self-awareness is asking yourself what and why and what and why. And that's the thing. Like there's a quote that I think kind of deals with that really head on. And it's, don't look where you fell, look where you slipped. And it takes a lot of going back. It takes a level of, of, emotional health to be able to look back and to answer the question why without saying I don't know but it does you a world of good so I mean it's just it's a little tangible thing I think that you know if there's deeper self-sabotage there you obviously you need to talk to a professional or a coach or whatever that looks like but find your you know put put the put stuff into two categories and really see what you come up with because we're a lot stronger than we paint ourselves out to be yeah I, and I was just like the word that keeps coming into my brain as i've as I've listened to you talk about like everything that we've covered today is resilience mm. and the the process that you went through yourself ended up being a process of developing and using your resilience and it sounds like the way that you work with people also is like looking at the roots of things and figuring out a way forward, which is how you build resilience. And I love that quote that you used about, you know, the difference between looking where you fell and looking where you slipped. Yeah. Because in in both cases, if you're going to keep moving forward, you have to get up and take another step. But sometimes we blame ourselves, we shame ourselves. Um, sometimes we take responsibility for things that we actually had no control over, uh, which is often the case in in situations of abuse. Yeah. And then it's really hard to take that next step. So I, I love I love those distinctions. And I, I really appreciate that distinction that you made between what is a true fear and what is actually risk. Mm-hmm. That's a really great distinction to make uh, because you can, you can learn how to get comfortable taking risks. That's so true. That is very true. And yeah. you can learn how to navigate through fear. And neither of them has to be a major roadblock or an obstacle. Yeah, 100%. Fear is not, like fear and risk are not the same thing. And once you start to realize that, you can look at fear as a problem to solve and look at risk as, okay, this is just something I'm willing to bet on and follow your dreams. You know, there's there's fear and risk attached to everything. So what are we just going to sit here and be planktons and do nothing? Like, no, of course not. (laughs) We have to move forward. Yeah, that's great. Well, we are, gosh, I can't even count how long we've been talking. It's been quite a while. <laughs> enjoyed every second. Uh, but I suppose we should wrap up. So I have two more questions for you. Yes, ma'am. So what is 
Table for Nine. How did that name come about and what does it really stand for? Oh, okay. So I actually, it's funny, I'm, I'm staring at the two pieces of paper hanging on my wall, like legal pad paper. But essentially what I did was I, I knew what I wanted to do for my coaching business and I started to like write names out, cross them out. And then eventually I landed on table for nine because I kind of thought to myself, if you are self-aware enough, you can have every single type of person around your table and there's no problem. You can literally have anyone around your table and nine based on the nine main Enneagram types. And so I was like, I, I just, I want to create a safe space. And I, and I love the idea of a table because it's a, it's a safe place. It's a welcoming, like I don't have anyone around my table that I, that doesn't make me feel safe and comfortable. And then I love the idea of bringing topics onto the table and just that idea of family. And so that's where table for nine actually came from. That's great. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that image of, of sitting around a table really is one of like fellowship and collaboration and work, you know, it's getting things done. It's exploration, brainstorming, sharing, you know, being, being sitting at the table Mm -hmm. was, it's a very different thing to sit at a table for one than a table for nine. hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? Ooh. I know this is going to sound weird, but start saying no to things. Start saying no and start sticking to your no. Your no has power. I actually was talking to somebody about this. That's why I thought of it. But uh, when when you say no, you, you know, you're don't underestimate how confident your power to choose can make you. And if you can say no to something that makes you uncomfortable, you are teaching other people a little bit more about who you are. And if someone tries to take your no away, remind yourself that they're attempting to take your power away for their own gratification. So it's a crossing of boundaries. If someone tries to convince you, now, like if you say, no, I don't want to go get my hair done today. And they're like, oh, come on, come with me, get a blowout. It'll be fun. They're they're not really crossing your boundaries, but you say, I'm uncomfortable having this conversation. So no. And they start to egg on, they are trying to take your personal power, even if they're the the nicest, well-meaning, most well-meaning people. So the most empowering thing you can do is keep your power to choose and your ability to say no when you actually want to say no and not people please and say yes, just because you think you have to. Damn. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) I was like, I was like, where's this question going? And then I, I literally was thinking about this earlier and talking to somebody about it earlier and I was like, I'm just going to use that. That's, that's good. Oh yeah. That is, that is brilliant. It's super <laughs> juicy. Yeah. I mean, I love that. Thank you. Wow. Okay. So, so we're going to finish with a bang like that, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's just great. So before we wrap it up, can you share how people can reach out to you? Cause I'm sure there's going to be quite a bit of interest in uh, talking with you and exploring more about the work that you do. So where can people find you? Oh yeah, absolutely. So my website is tableforninecoaching.com. It's F-O-R and the digit nine. Instagram is the same way. It's at tableforninecoaching spelled the same way. And after you've listened to all episodes of Born to be a Badass podcast twice, then you can head over to Table for Nine podcast. How long have you been doing your podcast? Oh, just a couple of months. I think I just, I'm releasing episode 16 this week. I've batched up to like episode 33. So I'm just waiting for them to release. But I mean, it's really just been 16 weeks. Oh, wow. Well, I tell you, after 
you know, our initial conversation and getting to pick your brain and pepper you with questions today, I am definitely going to start listening to your podcast because I am sure I'm just going to be nodding my head and loving it and learning all kinds of things. So I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that. So. Thank you. Well, gosh, Jackie, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. What a wonderful opportunity. I really appreciate it. This is the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.